When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, friends, to the court of the Trashy Royals, where we assemble each Thursday to celebrate our betters behaving badly. My name is Stacy. Hey, friends, Alicia here. Thanks for joining us today for more Naughty Nobles in our trashy storytelling journey. This week, we are taking the time machine not that far back. We have made it to pre-revolutionary times over in Russia with our Romanovs. But before that, interjected the trashy Hanoverian uncles of our profile today, Queen Victoria. It really does all come together this week as we wander into the trashy Victorians. We have to start with who the era was named after. After all, the Victorian era rolls from 1837 to 1901. So many years of trash, friends. Queen Victoria was, before she was a queen and a wife and a mother and a widow to just a young lass who had a very unlikely path to the throne. But as a young lass, just as a wee girl, Queen Victoria was not necessarily trashy, but holy cats. The people around her, namely her mother, the Duchess of Kent, and the Duchess of Kent's Equerry, her pony boy, perhaps lover, secretary. This guy has like every job in the book, Stacy. A lot of hats. John Conroy. John Conroy and the Duchess of Kent snakes, the both of them, surrounding a fair young princess and imposing a set of guidelines called the Kensington system used to guide the young Victoria. It is super ick. This episode is going to focus on that young princess before her crown, who, given the chance, does take that crown and will change the world and the next century. First, though, we want to say a huge thank you to the very first round of supporters who are getting ad-free and early episodes of Trashy Royals over at patreon.com slash Trashy Royals podcast. I think you mean ye fair and good nobles. Holy cats, I can't even believe y'all are amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for joining us over there. Are you ready to read these scrolls of our good fair nobles? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Kenda H., Bridget O., Sabrina, Lauren P., Captain Susie, Lauren C., and Amanda L. Simply amazing the lot of you. And we hope that you are enjoying your early and ad-free experience. All episodes are over there and will be posted a few hours before they drop on the main feed. Check it out if you're looking for that. But I think right now, Stacy, we must anon to the young Princess Victoria and the Kensington system and her trashy mama too. Love a trashy mama.
All right, Alicia, you're backing up the time machine a bit from where we were with the Romanovs. And the Kensington system, I have to say, that sounds like something very, very unpleasant. It's pretty hardcore. Okay. We are going to back up the time machine a bit. I think we made it to the 1870s over in Russia with our Romanovs. We've covered all of the Romanovs, most of the Romanov dynasty. Still have a few to go. (laughs) Tragic few. But in so many of those Romanov stories especially in the last few, we really have heard about Queen Victoria. Victoria is going to be instrumental into world events. But before we get to Queen Victoria and all the trashy Victorians, we're going to back it up just a little bit further and get to the parents of Queen Victoria. Before we get to her young, we have to get to her. (laughs) So let's just do a quick brief rundown and biography on each parent here. Queen Victoria's father was the Duke of Kent. That is his title at least, but his name is Edward. He is the fourth son and the fifth child of the, remember, 15 kids of George III and Queen Charlotte. Edward was born November the 2nd, 1767. So the American Revolution is only just amping up when baby Eddie comes into the world. Edward is educated at home, and until 1785, when he's sent into military training with the Hanoverian guards, Eddie's seeing new things, right? But by 1790, Duke Eddie nopes out. He doesn't like the Hanoverian guards. Five years was plenty enough, and Edward just takes off. And King George, his father, is furious when Edward shows back up with his rucksack from the Hanoverian guards. King George III is so mad, he's going to send Edward to serve in Gibraltar. Is the Hanoverian guard like the the Night's Watch on Game of Thrones? You're, once you're in it, you can never leave? Like, what what is going on? Unclear. I do not have that answer, but I like that idea. But he definitely bailed on... Oh, yeah, no doubt. Pulled a runner. And King George is mad. So off to Gibraltar. Not honorable. Okay. Now, for Duke Edward, Gibraltar isn't really terrible. I bet. It's pleasant weather. There's water. There's beaches. It's got to be pretty nice. Also, Duke Edward is going to attain a lover. Yeah. Let's enter Julie into our picture. Julie will become Edward's lover from 1790 to 1818. Wow. It's a long relationship. A long time. I would say mistress, but Edward is not married. Julie is, though. That seems right. Julie is known as Madame de Saint Laurent. She's the wife of a French colonel. She's known as Julie de Saint Laurent. Holy cats. The relationship between Julie and Duke Edward lasts almost three decades, 28 years. This relationship will continue even when Duke Edward gets sent over to Canada. Julie comes with him. You have a number of Canadian families claiming to be from their offspring. Interesting. Although that can't really be proven in the historical record. I want you to note that date, 1818, because 1818 is the year after Princess Charlotte dies, which is the whole thing that kicks off this race to an heir. Right. She was going to, she was the heir apparent. 
to George III. But now Princess Charlotte and her heirs are no longer, so Edward and his brothers off to right. the races. As covered in Queen Victoria's trashy Hanoverian uncles episode a few weeks ago. Correct. All three remaining brothers are available to procreate brothers. William, Edward, and Adolphus all marry in 1818. Champagne problems, am I right? But here's Duke Edward, Queen Victoria's forgotten father. And before marrying to make that baby in the race to the throne, Edward's going to continue to stay with Julie. So, 1791, after Gibraltar, Edward's transferred to Canada, Julie comes. 1802, Eddie is appointed as the general of Gibraltar, so back to better weather. But that doesn't go great. Listen to what Duke Edward does. Good Lord. So, as soon as he gets back over as the general of Gibraltar, which should be a pretty cushy gig, right? Not for the Duke of Kent. Old Eddie is like, all right, Christmas time is upon us. And I think I want to be a predecessor to Charles Dickens. There's a winter Christmas holiday, and Duke Edward decides that, you know, during the holiday break, no soldiers should have alcohol. And that goes badly. Was he murdered by his men? It, it, it goes bad. Edward is recalled to England. Pretty quick as probably not to be murdered. But the cool thing about being a duke is that Edward retains that title of General of Gibraltar without doing the actual job or ever going back to Gibraltar for the rest of his life. This is my <laughs> favorite way to do jobs. <laughs> I just get the check and I don't have to show up? Rock on. Okay, no matter. Edward doing this thing back to England by 1817. Sweet Princess Charlotte is dead. And now we have three brothers racing into bed with the first wife they can find available to... Noble wife. Noble wife, Approved yes. by dad. That's it. To suit the purposes needed. This next year, 1818, Julie is out. <laughs> After 28 years with the Duke, she's like, you've got to be kidding me. Julie's going to head to Paris and live her best life. So who is the Duke's new bride. Who will be the new Duchess of Kent and Strathern? There's a little bit of extra bit on the title that they use. The Strathern is not as used as Kent. It's a lesser title. Okay. Da-da-da! Introducing our new bride, Princess Victoria of Saxe-Coburg-Saufeld. A lot of Victorias here. It's a lot of name. This Princess Victoria was born August 17th, 1786. So there are about 20 years separating Princess Victoria and her new husband, Duke of Kent. Which is good, because her whole purpose in this marriage is to have babies. Right. Helpfully, though, Princess Victoria was already a widow hmm. at this time. She's the widow of the Prince of Leningen. She has two kids already, so credentials proven. Oh, I see. Right. So she can definitely, she's, she's fertile is what we're saying. Fertile, good to go. Time to get married. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching from the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the, we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So Edward and Victoria will get married on May the 29th, 1818. I'm sure it was a deeply romantic affair. (laughs) Edward is the new stepfather to her children and Princess Victoria and the Duke of Kent Edward and her two children head back to Leningen. But that is only until Princess Victoria gets pregnant. And then everybody heads back over to England. And it is in the spring of 1819 when the Duke and Duchess of Kent, Victoria's mother and father, come with a quickness in their wagons and carriages and boats back to England to have their child born in Kensington Palace. Being legally English is a big deal to the Duke and Duchess. Of course. And even though after said child is born, they book it out to Devonshire because it's cheaper to live there, it is at Kensington Palace in London on May the 24th, 1819, when young Princess Victoria Baby is born. Technically, Alexandrina Victoria, she's born almost a year from their first wedding anniversary. Now, backing up to young Victoria's mother, Duchess of Kent, Princess Victoria. Back in her heyday, she originally became the bride of the Prince of Leningen. He was a widower when they got married. (laughs) Listen to this trashy bit. The Prince of Leningen was 23 years older than Princess Victoria, who marries him at her tender age of 17, because the Prince of Leningen, his first wife, Henrietta, passes away. But Countess Henrietta is Princess Victoria's aunt. Okay, I, I don't exactly know what I'm supposed to say in response to that. I just wrote in my script, a little trashy. A little trashy. And also, the future Queen Victoria, Alexandrina Victoria, is named for Alexander I of Russia, celebrated defeater of Napoleon or or participant in the coalition that defeated Napoleon. That's it. As covered by us. It all comes together. So I don't know if you're the new bride of the widow of your aunt who was your uncle. I mean, (laughs) a little trashy. Yikes. But Edward, Duke of Kent, Prince of the Realm. And here, Princess Victoria, potentially mother to the heir or heiress presumptive. Oh yeah, Princess Victoria is going to tumble the dice on that one. There is a little bit of gossip that perhaps the Duke of Kent is not young Victoria's father. That it is perhaps <laughs> the Duchess of Kent were the hemophilia thing that is going to present itself in so many ways soon that we're going to talk about. Perhaps comes from the Duchess, but this again cannot be proven from the historical record. So here's baby Victoria with her parents and her half-siblings and six days before the death of her grandfather, King George III, young Victoria's father, the Duke of Kent, dies of a cold that progressed to the pneumonia stage. wow. In a world without antibiotics. She, just a baby. Yeah. Just a tiny, she's nine months old. She's just a tiny, tiny baby. Sure. And here her father has died, and her grandfather yeah, has died. six days later, yeah. And here is her mother, who has already booked it out to Devonshire, right? 
with a kid and two other children too. And the Duchess of Kent is going to tumble the dice and weigh her bets. And it is back to Kensington Palace to raise her children. Also, to hook up with John Conroy. John Conroy, the other snake in this story. John Conroy is <laughs> Princess Victoria's comptroller, her secretary, her equerry, her pony boy for 19 years. And here, back in Kensington, Princess Victoria, with the assistance of John Conroy, is essentially going to lock up young Victoria for years and years. Young Victoria, princess of the realm, has no contact with anybody besides family. No men, no other individuals, no friends, anyone who seems undesirable. This is a sheltered, sheltered kid. Well, and meanwhile, several of her uncles become king, right? Like, it's not like she is now the re- like in a regency or something. Remember, it's the king who takes over that lives until Victoria reaches 18 because he doesn't want the Duchess of Kent and John Conroy getting his hands on that regency. Yes. Yes. There's one king who manages to stay alive until Victoria makes it to 18, but she is the heiress presumptive. Yes. Those trashy uncles, man. Well, the thing is, with Victoria as an heiress presumptive, Princess Victoria, her mom, is going to go to extreme lengths to preserve her daughter's reputation. It comes at quite a cost. Here at Kensington Palace, believe it or not, it's kind of a quiet life. Even though they are at court, it is a little bit more secluded. It's away from a lot of the nonsense of the court. It is a daily rota. It's a schedule of rules and habits especially for young Victoria, who lives very much like any other upper-crust English girl of her time. There is a daily schedule. There are lessons and all the things that proper English girls should know. Religion and math and drawing and history, music and languages too. And to be fair, England has come pretty far in their views about educating women and Victoria's mom knows that her daughter is going to be queen. She's going places. Young Victoria hates every bit of it. She describes all of this nonsense in her journals as dreary, ever so dreary. But picture little young Victoria. She has pets. She plays dress up. She rides horses. It's not a terrible life. But at the age of 10, her half-sister Theodora is going to get married. Oh, and it's such a bummer for young Vix, right? Princess Theodora is going to marry Prince Ernst of Hohenlohe-Langenberg. That's probably what it's called. I'm certain locals don't particularly pronounce it that way, but Prince Ernst of Hohenlohe-Langenberg. Sweet and low Landingen. The point is, is that little young Victoria, who's been BFFs with her teenage sister, right? Theodora, she's been around her whole life. Now Theodora's gone. Gone. Young Victoria might be getting a little lonely. Victoria probably can't even pronounce the land she's going to. This is 1828. And at this point, young Victoria will grow ever closer with her governess. This is Louise Lazen who will become a baroness by the time this whole 
saga over the next few weeks is over. But Governess Louise has some ideas. And she implements some extra rules for Victoria, Duchess of Kent, John Conroy, totally on this. There are these behavior books, which sound bad enough, but then everybody's piling on new rules to all the behavior. Fantastic. And young Victoria, you wonder where she gets her journaling. She's a prolific journal writer for her entire life. A journalist, if you will. I learned it by watching you. Part of these dumb behavior books, Victoria has to record a, a, a personal assessments on her contributions into the world, for lack of a better term. She has to self-assess her attitude and her conduct, what her lessons and what she's learned, and all of it is recorded and reported in these books. She makes a lot of notes. She's not one to lack the words. And time, I think, bears this out. She learned it by the behavior books. One example, she wrote, she was naughty and vulgar. This was on the 1st of November, 1831. And each line is underlined four times. Very, 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 very horribly naughty. She's a bad, bad girl. (laughs) She's really not. I think she's a very good girl stuck in a kind of a crap sitch. Yeah. She's probably fundamentally a very normal girl in a very abnormal situation. That's it. It sounds like she was sort of being held hostage and subjected to some psychological torture techniques. A little bit. You could call it that. Confess! By the age of 13, young Victoria is all kinds of teenage girl writing in her own journal and diary, which is a habit I do highly recommend. Victoria, even from the age of like 10 isn't just writing about her own life. Because I would imagine the behavior books would get boring after a while, but young Victoria begins to write her own stories. Welcome to, at the age of 10, Sophia and Adolphus, in the style of Miss Edgeworth's Harry and Lucy. Hmm. If you could read my 10-year-old stories, they're hilarious. Young Victoria, though, also loves to do watercolor. Me too. She's a pretty talented artist, Her watercolor hobby, Young Victoria, will continue throughout her adulthood and lifetime. Okay. Growing up, for young Vicky, the trips to the theater are thrills for this young girl. They're like the best thing, because otherwise she doesn't get out. Typically, it's the theater that she can get out to. So when she gets out to the theater under that extreme circumstance... She's not worried about other people watching her. Young Victoria is watching everything happening in the theater because Victoria will go home and paint her memories of the costumes or the performances. Like, what an imaginative, Mm -hmm. thoughtful kid. And it's interesting because our perception now, when we think of Queen Victoria as this dour, old, widowed woman. In black, yeah. Yeah, yeah, dressed in black, mourning her husband, but it appears that young Victoria is kind of a hoot. She's lively and she's creative in all the ways, but alas, her mother is terrible. If there is a villain in this plot line of young Victoria... It's Princess Victoria, her mother? Yeah, the Duchess of Kent and John Conroy. Yeah, I believe he used the word snakes to describe them, so... It's not wrong. 
So by 1830, it's pretty clear that young Victoria is going to be the heiress presumptive. Again, her queen predecessor, all the way back in Tudor times, Elizabeth I, she never said a word about who she was going to give her crown to. She kept everybody guessing. But as we learned back in Queen Victoria's trashy Hanoverian uncles, young Victoria does have a very unlikely path to the throne. So by 1830, the Duchess of Kent, anticipating this extravagant rise for her daughter, puts the Kensington system into play. And here, we really manifest something in young Victoria that (laughs) will have her mom kick to the curb when Victoria does finally get the crown. Mama, Duchess of Kent, gets the benefit here of educating her daughter in seclusion, but also allowing the Duchess of Kent to publicize all the virtue and goodness and the tender assets of young Victoria. There are examinations of Victoria about this whole Kensington system thing that are made public and praise from the Archbishop of Canterbury happens. This is some pre-Victorian public relations at its finest. But what is the Kensington system really and how will it influence young Victoria in her lifetime? We're going to take a quick break and come back to answer that question. See you on the flip. All right. So what is the Kensington system? Indeed. What is the Kensington system? Good Lord. The Kensington system was a set of rules designed by Princess Victoria's mom and her advisor, quote unquote, John Conroy. Now, it is unclear if John Conroy and the Duchess of Kent were having a sexual relationship, but it is very clear, quite clear, crystal, that John Conroy had a great deal of control and influence over the Duchess of Kent. During that time of scrutiny and societal standards, it is maybe perhaps unlikely the two of them could have carried on a secret sexual relationship without being discovered. Except that people did all the time. All the time. I mean, I feel like when historians say, well, we're not sure if they were lovers, it pretty much means they probably were. Well, these two had to have been really, really secretive about it because each one of them... (laughs) were intensely disliked. So if anybody got a whiff of that sort of relationship, had it been uncovered, it would have been the cause of scandal. It would have been much more prevalent. Ruinous, perhaps? Taboo. Maybe they keep it quiet. No one really knows, but nah, use your imagination. Whatever the relationship between John Conroy and the Duchess of Kent... They were probably just roommates. (laughs) Whatever they had going beyond that, the two of them conspired to definitely have an inappropriate relationship controlling Princess Victoria. The Kensington system was set up to keep the young princess completely isolated from the world outside of her mother and John Conroy. The thinking here is that this Kensington system was to keep Victoria safe, but it was extreme to such a degree 
that Victoria was never allowed to sleep in her own room or walk down a set of stairs without someone holding her hand. Are you saying there was like a minder who stayed in her room while she slept at night? Yeah, wait on it. Oh, it's terrible. The Kensington system is rough. So, we were talking about a little bit earlier. If King William IV had died prior to Victoria's 18th birthday, the Kensington system may have paid off for the Duchess of Kent and John Conroy because they would have become Victoria's regents. But, 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 since Victoria was of legal age to rule in her own accord when her uncle died, the Kensington system backfired. Big time. Victoria, at the time of King William's passing, now Queen Victoria, was so tired, fed up, over it, of the tight control and authority. Not being able to walk downstairs without someone holding her hand? Uh Uh-huh. For years, for from yeah. 10 to, oh, it's terrible. It's so terrible. I'd be angry too. And that's an age when you're supposed to be angry. Victoria is so mad about it that once Victoria becomes queen, John Conroy is completely... Beheaded. No, no. But completely cut out of the circle. And Victoria essentially cuts herself off from her mother. Like goes no contact for sure. many years. Sure. In C. Hey, beats a beheading. In fact, upon learning she was queen, Queen Victoria's first act, you want to hear what she does, this poor sweet child? I want one hour alone. Oh my God. That is the first thing she does. It was the first time she'd been allowed to be in a room alone in her entire life. That's shocking. Think about that. Oh, it sounds like child abuse. Bigly. It is a controlling system meant to isolate. Good Lord. I I would just like one hour alone, please. I'm Queen of England. Gonna need an hour. Don't get in, losers. I'm locking the carriage. We're going nowhere. (laughs) All right. Here's some rules and regulations of the Kensington system to unpack it a little. Princess Victoria was never allowed any privacy at all. At all. I want you just to encompass that. It didn't matter if she was washing or changing or using the restroom. Young Victoria was accompanied everywhere by either her mother or her governess. Next up, she was not allowed to walk up or downstairs without holding typically her mother's hand. I think she could hold her governess's hand, but again, somebody had to be holding her hand. Victoria was not allowed to sleep in her own room under any circumstances. Where does Victoria sleep? She's forced to share a room with her mother. Okay, that does create an argument against a secret relationship between her mom and John Conroy. A little bit. Conroy, Conroy, yeah. Once Victoria becomes queen, the second thing she does is orders for her bed to be removed from her mother's room and brought to a room of her very own. Yes, good. Young Victoria was only allowed to interact with people that her mother or John Conroy deemed appropriate. Young Victoria was never, ever, ever allowed to be alone with anyone from her father's family. She even has to communicate with her uncles in letters. Wasn't one of her uncles potentially plotting to kill her, though? Well, yeah. Okay, so there may that one may have had some... <laughs> Meh. 
But even the uncles that she likes, even William sure, IV. Sure, who, who care about her and are not trying to plot against her, maybe. Right, they're trying to keep Victoria safe. Yeah. Oh, Willie Fours will have to write letters. Mm-hmm. Okay, again, all of her activities and daily doings were all recorded and documented, not just by mom and staff, but again, self-reported by young Victoria, too. One time, Victoria's sick. John Conroy and her mom literally try to force her to sign a document declaring John Conroy will be her personal secretary when she becomes queen. And in that personal secretary job, John Conroy has the power to make decisions for Victoria, just whatever John Conroy wants. Interesting. Young Victoria, ill bedridden, refused to do this. Now, naturally, John Conroy is going to get mad about this, but Victoria never, ever forgives his attempts, not only doing this, but the whole scope of a lifetime, all of John Conroy's attempts for intimidation and coercion. Queen Victoria will ensure that John Conroy never, ever has any of her power. And I want you to remember here that young Victoria perhaps has a complicated relationship with men. And we will see this play out throughout her lifetime. Remember, as a girl, she doesn't see men regularly. They are unfamiliar to her, except for John Conroy, who's around all the time. But here we have young Victoria, a passionate child, full of talents and so many feelings. But she's strong-willed, And she may have to keep it kind of tamped down, but young Victoria wants to please. This next bit of the story I'm taking from a piece called Victoria as a Girl, The Patient Rebel by Professor Lynn Valone. I think these next paragraphs do a great job setting up the next bits of our story because everyone is always telling her what to do. And Victoria, as a girl, is so patient. The patient rebel, but not for long. Professor Lynn Valone writes, In his frequent letters, Leopold, who became king of the Belgians in 1831, often commented upon Victoria's appearance and public conduct. His council attempted to prepare his young niece for the demands and responsibilities of her eventual situation. In 1836, He reminded her that high personages are a little like stage actors. They must always make efforts to please their public. Victoria's short stature concerned Leopold. She never reached five feet in height. And Leopold often warned Victoria against eating too quickly and too much. Victoria took this advice to heart and tried to persuade him to visit her in part to witness her reformed eating habits. I wish you could come here for many reasons, but also to be an eyewitness of my extreme prudence in eating, which would astonish you, she writes to Leopold, King of the Belgians. Although Princess Victoria welcomed her uncle's advice, as she grew older, her mother's smothering concern and criticisms became increasingly irritating to the sensitive girl. Nearly forgotten today, Theodora, the second child of her mother's first marriage to the Prince of Leningen, was well-loved by Victoria, and the two sisters maintained a lively correspondence throughout their lives. 
This emotional 15-year-old Victoria grieved deeply when young Theodora and her young family departed England after one of her infrequent visits. With Victoria writing, I clasped her in my arms and kissed her and cried as if my heart would break. So did she, dearest sister. Now, remember the governess, Governess Louise? Okay. Future future Baroness Louise, yeah. Louise Lazen remained Victoria's confidant throughout the entire youth of the princess and into her first years as queen. The strong bond would ultimately cause problems within Victoria's relationship with her mother and with Prince Albert. But in the early years, Louise Lazen was nearly perfect in Victoria's eyes. During a serious illness in 1835, the Duchess of Kent and Sir John Conroy attempted, among other schemes, to convince Victoria that she would not be fit to rule until she was 21, although legally she would gain her majority at 18. Governess Louise was on hand to nurse Victoria and supported her refusals of her mother's designs. Although the Duchess of Kent is never accused within her journal, Victoria gushes that, quote, My dearest best Lazen has been and still is, for I require a great deal of care still, most unceasing and indefatigable in her great care of me. With her father having died when she was eight months old, there were few men whom Victoria saw with any regularity during her early years. As a consequence, the rare occasions when she was allowed male companionship were much-anticipated treats for the princess. One man she did see regularly was her father's former equerry and her mother's closest advisor, the ambitious Sir John Conroy. Victoria's hatred of this man and his manipulations was deep-seated and permanent. Her uncle Leopold, however, functioned as a steady, although ultimately remote, father figure for Victoria throughout her girlhood. Victoria delighted in the visits that various male cousins from her mother's side of the family would occasionally make. Her first cousins, Ernst and Albert of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, traveled to London with their father, another brother of the Duchess of Kent, to help Victoria celebrate her 17th birthday. (laughs) The studious Albert, who would later captivate Victoria and turn her attentions from her first prime minister, Lord Melbourne, was a rather dull guest for the lively Victoria at this time. I mentioned both of those. They are going to be coming back around in our story. Here, Prince Albert is prone to fits of fainting, and preferred quiet evenings to the balls that Victoria delighted in. In 1836, Victoria was quite enamored of three Persian princes seeking asylum in England. She coyly related to her journal a delightful bit of flattery she received from these quote-unquote exotic visitors. She writes, The princes were asked by Sir Gore, their translator, what struck them most or what had made the most impression on them in England? The reply was Windsor Castle and me. (laughs) Only one of her. The significant loss of her father when she was an infant 
and of the lack of male company in her childhood cannot be underestimated when judging Victoria's character and growth into a woman. She would seek male attention and companionship for the rest of her life. Which is where we are going to get to in our coming episodes. A lot of names dropped in that that will continue throughout our Trashy Victorian series here on Trashy Royals. As for trashy crowns in this one, come on, it's the Duchess of Kent and John Conroy. Absolutely agree. A whole Kensington system of trashy crowns filled with young Victoria's morning pages of journaling. Want you just to make a note, we are going to see a number of these powerful women and their henchmen, for lack of a better term, through time. These two, Duchess of Kent and John Conroy, simply terrible. Sometimes the enemy is your mother. Sometimes. Thank you one and all for joining us today. We appreciate you listening and telling your friends and fellow podcast enthusiasts. We appreciate your kind emails, your ratings, and your five-star reviews. We will be back next Yonder Thursday with this continuing Victorian drama. But if you need more Trashy Royals in the meantime, don't forget for two bucks a month, you can get all of our episodes early and ad-free over at patreon.com slash Trashy Royals Podcast. And until we meet again, friends of the court, polish up those crowns, keep your eye on the throne. Thanks again, everybody. Have a great weekend. Bye. Bye.